everyone doing? Is that too loud or is that good? Okay, cool. That's true, I'm not a yeller. I'm pretty chill. So this might be a pretty chill sermon. It's only on the Trinity, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, keeping it light. All right, before I start, um, I'm just going to pray real quick because I think prayer is a good way to start any sermon or any thing or any activity. Uh, Father God, I just ask that you um, um, make sure the words I speak are um, truthful and for you and that they glorify you and your holiness above anything else. Um, Lord, I just ask that um, anyone who is here um, is blessed by you. And Lord, um, I just pray that um, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are honoring to your glory and not the glory of myself. Lord, we thank you for another day where we wake up and we get to fellowship with each other. And as we talk about this great mystery known as the Trinity, um, I just ask that you engage not just our minds, but our hearts. We say these names in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. All right. Morning, guys. How's everyone doing? That's good. Someone said well, so they have good grammar. Great job. Um, a little too fancy for my take. I just say good, you know. I, maybe sometimes. <laughs> Whatever works, you know. Um, this has been an interesting couple weeks for me, actually. Not like bad, it's just been really busy. And so I actually wrote this sermon technically in my head for about three months and even further for about five, six, seven years. But I wrote it yesterday, technically. Um, and so, <laughs> like any good pastor, right? You just do it the day before. Um, but I, I, uh, the reason I say that is because when I transferred over from my laptop to my iPad, read from this, smell kind of weird. So because I don't have it memorized, I hope you guys are patient with me as I read from this, trying to remember everything that I wrote down. Because this is actually my largest sermon too. Last week it was at 4,800 words. Today it's at 5,100 words. So breaking records, I guess. <laughs> That's what happened when you do it in like a three-hour span. I was like, if I don't get it done by four o'clock, this is not going to work. Um, I'm not sure what my backup plan was, but <laughs> here we go. Yeah, it's good to be transparent, you know, because the other thing is, this is funny. This is like a, something I was thinking about the other day, right? Like I posted something on Facebook because I'm kind of back on Facebook again. Bad habit. But <clears throat> I was showing how um, I was just talking about my week, how I like to... Me and Aaliyah, my daughter, were going through the book of Esther during this week. And I was just like, hey, man, if you don't catechize your kids, someone else will. Catechize just means teaching them, teaching about God. And I got like a few messages. I wasn't, I was just, it was just a thing I posted. And people were like, oh, you know, a couple guys are like, you're doing so great. I need to do this more with my family. And how do you do it? And I was like, barely do it. I have a job. I actually have two jobs because I have my own business. So I've worked two jobs this week, non like just busy. You know, there's all the daily things of life that we have, um, and then had to uh, deal with some family stuff as well, and just, you know, the, the, the things that make life life. 
And so sometimes I think it's good to be transparent because I'm not like a super person or a super Christian. I just like struggle like many other people. Maybe I do it better than some of you. I'll admit that. But I'm still just a person. <laughs> now, last week we talked about the divinity of Christ. I made this bold claim that if you do not understand the gospel, you cannot understand Jesus. And if you don't understand Jesus, you cannot understand the gospel. And I want to make another bold claim here that you cannot understand the gospel if you don't understand the Father and the Holy Ghost. Now, when I thought about preaching this passage, I had to ask myself, what is my goal here? Because many people don't understand the Trinity. Even myself at times have struggled to explain it properly to either non-believers or Christians themselves. And I understand that this is what we may call a great mystery of the church. Some historians would argue for the first 400 years of the church, this doctrine known as the uh, doctrine of God came into existence because some of these teachings were hard to grasp. Even the inventor of the word we call Trinity, Tertullian, who was a North African bishop, if you read some of his works, you might find things you disagree with, even though we use that word, and he's considered one of the early church fathers. Why is that? Because one is there's a language differences. He comes from a different philosophical take, and we've had over 2,000 years to develop this doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that the Trinity has not always existed, simply that humans trying to understand who God is have taken time to explain this complex mystery. Now, just because it is a mystery doesn't mean we can't explain it to a certain extent. We don't want to be lazy and just say, oh, it's a mystery. I just believe it because someone told me one day, that's just really lazy. No, we still want to try and pursue it. And unlike last week where I made a really hard stance on Christ, divinity, you have to understand it, it needs to be explained in these ways, I will give a little more leeway in the Trinity because depending on your church tradition, whether you're from Western churches like we are, children of the Reformation, or whether you come from a more Eastern tradition, or even places in Africa and the Middle East, if you, as I was studying this, I was kind of surprised at some of the different language they use, but still come to that same conclusion, that the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son are God, one God and three persons. And so I would say, like I did last week, if you belong to a church that does not affirm the Trinity, I would say you probably need to leave. And if you have any friends that are part of churches that are not for this, you should tell them to come here instead. <laughs> it's one of those things where we argue and debate about in popular culture, popular Christian culture, quite a bit. Some of very popular people that you may follow, one person in particular I know is very popular among conservatives is this guy named Brandon Tatum. He's a conservative commentator. He doesn't affirm the Trinity. He argues with people online about it. I got in a little Twitter thing with him, kind of. He responded once. I thought it was kind of rude, but I'll come back again. I have a problem. That's why I don't do social media. I don't know how to just be quiet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. So you have people with platforms who claim to be Christian or conservative, whatever, that we may go, to, go towards to that do not affirm this doctrine. And you have to affirm this doctrine to be considered in the church. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I asked myself this, what is my goal, like I said earlier? Like last week, I said, if I just give you knowledge, if I just give you a lecture, what's the point? 
right? Um, I do think there is something very good about giving practical advice when giving a sermon and how that relates to you. And this might be hard. You might be saying, how does the Trinity relate to my personal life, right? Well, I will say this. If you don't understand God properly, how can you grow with him? How can you become closer to him? This is any type of doctrine, whether it's a subject like forgiveness, right? If you don't understand what God says about forgiveness, how do you forgive? Well, if you don't understand what God says about marriage, how do you honor your wife or your husband well? When we're not following, and here I wrote, failing the scriptures. <laughs> That's what happens when you uh, do it in a day before. How can we properly honor God and his people? And this doctrine of the Trinity can be hard to see those connections. But I will say this. When you don't understand that you have a Father in heaven who cares about you, when you don't understand that Jesus, the Son, came down to die for you, to purchase you, to make you adopted sons and daughters, and when you don't understand that the Holy Spirit is not some mythical energy force, but God himself praying and interceding for you, how can you properly grow in the faith? Understanding the nature of God is essential to your faith. And last week I quoted this study from Ligonier Ministry, many of you guys remember, 70% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that Jesus is a created being. Self-proclaimed Christians believe Jesus is created. This is a crisis. Now, like I said before, self-reported can mean whatever, right? But there's plenty of people, possibly in this room, who say, I am a Christian and may hold that belief. So, we have to address this well. Now, last week I made a Facebook, or last month I actually made this Facebook post where I said I was going to preach on the Trinity, and someone said, uh, you should really be careful because a lot of people end up going into heresy, which I believe, because I've heard Christians try to explain it before, and many just kind of do a very bad job because it's very complex. Um, I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago from this very famous pastor. I won't say his name because I'm sure there's people who like this pastor. I don't want to offend anyone. His name is Mike Todd. Um, <clears throat> but he did this sermon on the Trinity, and it was, it was lacking much, to say the least. The way he explained it with his illustrations did not encompass the greatness and holiness of the Trinity. It was just really bad example. And I want to share something before we start, is four common illustrations that people use to explain the Trinity, right? Now, what's an illustration? An illustration is just a way like, to explain something in a simple way. Um, and a lot of us use it for very complex things. And I've heard these ones quite a bit. And two of these I've used myself early on. And so I just want to explain them and tell you why I think they fall short in explaining the Trinity. So the first illustration is the Trinity is like a person, like me and you. Right? We're related to something we understand. And some of them might say, see, the Trinity ha is like you. It has a body, like they're referring to Jesus, and then a soul, usually they're referring to the Father, and then a spirit. Right? Now, the problem here is that you are not three different persons. 
your body, your soul, your spirit are one thing. They're not separate things. That's not correct Christian doctrine. That's like something different. It's like Gnosticism or some other weird thing that people are doing. Right? And the other problem with this illustration, sometimes it leads to theological debates that aren't very helpful, right? Because many Christians have a different view on what the soul and spirit is, if it's a different thing, if it's not. What does that mean when you say spirit? You mean, like, it, it becomes too complicated. And I have actually used this one before. I was taught it very early on, and I explained it to some people. And in hindsight, it was just a lack of wisdom because you are not like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It just simply falls short. Now, out of this one, I think this one is probably not as egregious as some of the other three. Um, I think if you stretch it like yoga, you know, um, then maybe it'll work. But I would say it, it still falls short. Another common one I heard, this is probably the most common one, is that, um, let's see, Rob, can you stand up for me real quick? So here's Rob. Everyone knows Rob, right? He's a husband to Siobhan. He's, his kids aren't here, and he's also a son as well. We're all sons and daughters of someone, right? All right, you can sit back down unless you just like being that. I just want an example, right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't work either, right? Because Rob or any of us are not three different persons. These are roles that we play or participate in, right? Now, you could say, well, he's, you're always a father if you have kids. You're always a son. You're always a friend if you're, or whatever. But it's not the same. We don't split up. We don't have different wills. There's nothing like that. It's still one person, not separate things or roles, right? The father isn't sometimes a son in different situations, and the son isn't sometimes a father in different... No, God is always one God. So while this is a common one many of us, I bet, have used, it still falls short because it's too human. Roles are different than persons. Fatherhood right, is a role that you do, but the Father is always the Father, and He is always God. Now, here's my least favorite one. I hate this one with a passion. It's really bad, but it sounds really smart, um, and this is comparing the Trinity to H2O. Now, this is one that I've seen pastors get on stage, and they'll have, like, some water here and some ice here, and then they'll put dry ice because you can't have steam in a bucket, so then it doesn't even work already. That's just my tangent here, right? But these are not a good way of explaining the Trinity, right? Because here's the thing. Water becomes ice. Ice becomes vapor. But God does not change who he is. He doesn't become the father one moment and then decides, you know, I feel like being the son right now. And then later on, he's like, I guess I'll be the spirit, right? And then if you're like, no, James, I'm sure it works. I mean, maybe if you get a giant bucket you throw some water, then you take some ice, and then you make it steam, but then eventually what's it going to become? It's either going to become vapor, it's going to become water, or depending on how cold it is, it's going to become ice. It's a, it just falls apart if you start to break it down. It's my least favorite one. I don't know why that one irks me as much as it does, but it, it does. Maybe because I don't drink enough water. That might be why. <laughs> Maybe I'll go to your house and try it then and see if I do. All right. And then here's one I heard last week, um, and it was just very strange. And it's comparing the Trinity to an egg. Have you guys ever heard this one? I don't know. Someone told me this was a common thing as I was reading it. I've never heard this, so I wasn't sure. But I'm going to tell you about it, that some people have used this comparing the Trinity to a boiled egg. So you have the shell, the yolk, and then, like, you know, the white outer part in there. Um, But that also doesn't work. It doesn't look like anyone heard of that one at all before. So 
You know, but I'm going to explain it anyway, I guess. This one also doesn't work because the egg is one thing, right? Only a third of it is a shell. Another third is the outer white. Another third is the yolk. That's not how God works. He's not the father out here and then the son and then the spirit. All of these illustrations just don't work well. And many people use them, many pastors who are very good-willed, and many Christians who are trying to explain a complex doctrine want to use these illustrations to make it simple. And I understand, but I just think it doesn't work. So what's another tool we could use? Another one, some people say, is apologetics to explain the Trinity. Um, now, for this one, and I hope no one takes offense to what I'm about to say here. Can you guys promise not to get mad at what I'm about to say? Okay, that's fair. I think most Christians are really bad at apologetics. Right? I think that the, a lot of our apologetic tools are just not well because most Christians simply lack the understanding of how to do good rhetoric. We don't even teach in the schools anymore, um, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, someone agrees. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And I just have a problem with this. I remember a couple years ago when we were church shopping, my daughter went to um, a kids' church program, not here because our kids' church is amazing, but a different church. Um, and they did some apologetic stuff. And my daughter's coming back, we're driving a car, I'm asking her questions. And I was like, man, that's, that's really bad arguments. <laughs> I started poking holes in it very easily. Now you might say, James, you're a 30-year-old man talking to a 10-year-old at the time. What do you expect? Well, I first have to say my daughter's a genius, for one. Okay, I didn't, you know, and two, it doesn't matter though, because honestly, most Christians would make arguments similar and I would still be able to poke holes in them. Very few people are good at apologetics. People like Pastor Brent, who's somewhere around here, he is pretty good at apologetics. I think he could wipe the floor with most atheists, but most of us, including myself, aren't very well versed in apologetics. Well, let me be honest, I'm actually really good at it. I was just trying to like relate to you guys, but you know, that's all right. So apologetics can also fall short because most Christians aren't very good at explaining these complex things through arguments that are outside the Bible. Part of that also is because most of us aren't very good at philosophy. So you could take a philosophical route. That's where a lot of these words come from, persons, the word trinity. These aren't just things necessarily found in the Bible. They come from our philosophical tradition, which is because we're in the West, Greek and Roman in nature. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard this saying before, that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, and it helps to understand philosophy well. But the problem is most of us don't. I've heard people try to explain this in things, and they're just punching above their weight class. And then when you're trying to explain this, because most Americans don't understand philosophy, you're going to lose your crowd. Why lose your crowd? Use things that people can understand. Now, I'm not saying that us Americans are dumb or anything like that. I'm simply saying that we, because of our education system and our um, intellectual history, just simply do not value philosophy well. Uh, I do recommend, though, if you are interested in the philosophical heritage of the Trinity, R.C. Sproul has a really good uh, playlist just on YouTube if you don't feel like reading, if you're like me. Like, I, you know, I read, but I still just like watching YouTube easier because... Well, I don't know, it's just easy, right? So we have these three different ways you can do it. You can do illustrations, you can do philosophy, you can do 
um, uh, apologetics, but I think all of them truly fall short. So I want to ask you guys a question here. What do you think is the best way to explain the Trinity then? Someone say it. Come on. Scripture. Scripture. Amen. Thank you. The rest, what are you guys, are you guys thinking? Were you going to say nothing? Just come on, engage here. All right? Come on. You guys can shout down a little bit. I know we're not Pentecostal, but still, if I can get some flag waving, that might be helpful. Oh, <laughs> <Well>, maybe. <laughs> no, the best way to describe the Trinity is just through Scripture. If God wanted to be described as an egg, he would write it in the Bible. If God wanted to be described as water, he would write that somewhere. Instead, he does not explain himself that way. So in this sermon here, I'm mostly just going to quote scripture. I'm not going to do a lot of heavy lifting. I'm just going to read what the Bible says. Because I think that's easier, right? Than trying to go on some long tangent about different ways to explain a complex thing. Um, now, unfortunately, because I wrote this yesterday, I didn't make slides. But um, if you guys just follow along, I'm going to read these kind of quickly. If you want, like, my manuscript for some reason, I can send it to you or give you a list of the verses I use. So just ignore the grammar errors. I, I wrote it yesterday. So I'm going to start right in the Old Testament if that works for you guys. I'm going to go to Isaiah 44.6. And we're just going to start with this first concept as we start that God is one. One God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And this is important, so we're going to start there first, because if we don't understand this concept, the Trinity won't make sense. So Isaiah 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord says, king, or Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, I am the first and the last, and there is no other God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. He showed, you the Sorry. he showed you these things so you can know that the Lord is God and there is no other. No other. So right off the back, we have these two verses that show that God is one. While we believe that there is um, the three persons of the Trinity, we are still a monotheist. And that just means that we believe in one God, which is the opposite of other religions who are polytheist. And that is very important distinction because sometimes people like Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or, um, uh, God, give me the name, uh, uh, Muslims will say that we sometimes, and it depends on the Mormons, but a lot of Muslims say, you guys believe in several gods. You have three of them. And I'm like, no, we don't. We're, let's read the Bible. Let's argue that, you know. Um, this is especially important when talking with uh, either uh, Jehovah Witnesses and even some oneness Pentecostals as well. And then there's also this idea of one God in the New Testament as well. If we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, and he says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. Repeat that. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. Not God's, not, it says God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and has come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all his people. And there are dozens of more passages. You guys can simply Google the oneness of God, and you'll see them in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. So that's perfect to understand. Now, what do we do next? Like, well, James, we're going to get to the Trinity part. Just, just wait a minute. We want to explain this next part, that God is eternal. What does eternal mean? It means he's always existed. And this is important because if God is one and we have three persons, they always have to exist forever, from the beginning, before any of us existed. Otherwise, the Trinity doesn't make much sense. So we're going to go right to the Old Testament that shows of God's eternal nature. And I'm going to go right to the beginning here of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And this is what it says here. Um, sorry. Uh, it says here that, um, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Let's make, us, let's make them in our image. Not the image of angels or whatever. No, God is referring to himself. How about Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 22? Um, it says again, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us. It's referring to the Tower of Babel. Knowing both good, or excuse me, uh, the, uh, knowing both good and evil, will they reach out, take the fruit, uh, the fruit, of the tree of life and eat it, for they will live forever. Once again, God's referring to himself, because only he has lived forever. We are just simply beings that are created, angels created, but God himself has always existed and is always eternal. And we only exist because of him. Jesus was not created, and the Holy Spirit didn't come after. They've always been eternal. We believe in one God who was revealed through us, in Jesus, in the form of a man. But even though Jesus came down as a man, he still has always existed. Um, now, when talking about God and the Trinity, some people have this interesting claim that I want to dismiss here, um, that the Trinity has only been coming like along later in the New Testament, but we see it throughout the Old Testament. We even see this in the idea of the um, Father, God himself, throughout the scripture. Now, you might hear Christians say this, and this is a very important role here. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say that this idea of the Father is not shown until Jesus introduces it. So I'm sure you guys know what's going to come up. I'm going to show you passages that show that that's not true, right? And so I want to show you that this idea that the Father has always been the Father is even throughout the Old Testament. One passage I think makes this really clear is Isaiah 64, or excuse me, Isaiah 63, 16 through 17. And I think this is just a great example. You are our Father. Through Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from old is your name. So we see this in the Old Testament. This idea of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit didn't just come out of nowhere, as some people may claim. This is even found in the Old Testament. We can go right to the next chapter, Isaiah 64, verse 8 through 9. O Lord, you are our Father. 
We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like that idea just came out of nowhere? Well, we can even go further back. How about to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1 through 2? Look what Moses says to the Hebrews. You are the sons of the Lord our God. That language of being sons and daughters of God, you can see from the beginning. For, our, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And of all the people who are on the face of the earth... So this is very important because we say in Christianity that we are adopted sons and daughters. And if we are not wise, we will think that this sort of developed later on, as this is some Second Testament uh, or Second Temple idea from Judaism, which I've heard some anti-Christian scholars say. But I would simply say, well, what Bible are you reading then? Are you just ignoring the other half? Possibly, it seems like it does it. I don't know why people, well, I know why people do that. We all know why people do that, right? And then look, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, living through all. So we see that this idea of Father is found from the, New, the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. So we've established two things here. One, there's one God. He's eternal, and the Father has always existed. So I want to go to the next person here of the Trinity. And who is that? Come on, guys, get awake, all right? Come on, thank you. Jesus. And this person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, um, we talked about at great length uh, last week. And so I'm not going to go in super detail, but we as Christians affirm what? That Jesus is? Yep, Lord, God, right? And so if you want to know more about it, if you weren't here last week, once it's up on YouTube, you can listen to my sermon. But I'm just going to quote a couple verses that show that Jesus is God. First one is the one who I think is uh, one that is our go-to, is right in John um, chapter 1. Anyone know what that verse is? Or, uh, what, what does it say? What is it? Yes. Yes, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we know that verse to go to. If you guys, like I said, want further explanation, please listen to that sermon. I'm not going to go in great detail again over it, but just know that we believe Jesus Lord. Other verse I like to use is in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 through 6. It says, for even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. So we know that Jesus is God. So we establish another thing. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is also God. But now this last person I wish to focus on is one I think that um, a lot of times we have a hard time grasping. And now who's the third person of the Trinity, guys? Holy Spirit. And if you're extra Pentecostal, you say the Holy Ghost. Yep. That's what I'm saying, right? I like that term better, Holy Ghost. You know, read from the King James, and you really get into it. Thy Holy Ghost. But both are fine. Um, but nothing drives me more crazy when I hear Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Um, I've heard Christians say that the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not a force. 
This isn't Star Wars. You're not going to use the Holy Spirit and grab your lightsaber, all right? No, the Holy Spirit is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. And we can see that throughout Scripture. And we can see it right from the beginning. You know where we're going to go to, right? We're going to go to the book of Genesis, where it says right in chapter 1, verse 2, um, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Um, another verse in the New Testament, I want us to all go here to see how important this is. Um, please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 6 here, actually. And say amen when you get there. Amen. And that's on it. The rest of you guys are kind of slow, but that's Okay. All right, so I'm going to read this here because this explains why we believe the Holy Spirit is God. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know, when you were still pagans, you were led astray and slept along and worshiping speechless idols. So I don't want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in us all. So we know, and this is very important, I think, because today we live in this time, I think, where so many people are always speaking for God, or say they have the Spirit, say people, like, one way to know if someone has the Spirit in them is they are going to affirm who Jesus is. Anyone who says something contrary, who does not affirm the divinity of Christ, I would highly question if they are truly among us. Is that too strong to say? I don't think so. I think it's right on. How about another passage here that explains that the uh, Holy Spirit is God? We're going to go to chapter, or excuse me, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15 here. Um, and it says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and I will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because he isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be with you. I just want to point out something here. What does it say? It says he is the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. Uh, NLT. Yeah. I think. I'm pretty sure. Um, here's another passage here. Um, I believe this is out of, uh, this is my own disorganization here, but it's in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter six, uh, 15, possibly here, 26 through 27, someone quote me on that, but it says, I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, and he will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. You must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So what is happening here? Jesus, and this is something that you'll, if you read through all the Gospels, you'll see this a lot. Jesus does a lot of explaining who the Father is and who the Spirit is and who he himself is. It's interesting that a good part of Jesus' ministry is explaining who God is in a Trinitarian way. 
I feel like someone should do a whole sermon on that because I don't feel like we focus on that enough. If Jesus is affirming the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, He is God, who are we to argue that there is no Trinity? I have to wonder sometimes people who are in these Christian cults like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, when they read the scriptures, how do they come to the conclusions they come to? It's a good question, isn't it? Yes, the Trinity can be confusing at times, but it is important to understand that God has revealed himself through the prophets and the word, and of course, Jesus himself in great detail about the Trinity. And the reason this matters is because if you do not understand who God is, you cannot grow. I actually want to tell you guys this really fascinating story here about why what you think and knows matters. This is a very strange story, and some will say it's kind of hard to even verify if it's true, but it's really interesting, and it illustrates what we believe matters. So this goes back to China in the year 2000, right before Chinese New Year. Now, as we all know, China is an authoritarian regime. Um, It likes to quash human rights and religious minority groups. There's one religious group that some people might say is a cult. Some people say it's not. I think it's a cult. It has all the right. But either way, they don't deserve to get discriminated against because your beliefs are wacky, right? Now, this group was protesting against China, and this is why it matters what you believe. Because in order for them to fight against the Chinese authoritarian regime, they decide to set themselves on fire. So in the middle of Tiananmen Square, during Chinese New Year, which is a huge political event in China, four of them got together and lit themselves on fire. Now why did they do this, right? This, this seems counterproductive. I don't know what your goal would be by setting yourself on fire to gain some type of political rights, because you're dead. What are you going to do, huh? But this is interesting because the reason they believe that is that leaders within this group told them that their leader would protect them and they would not feel pain while they were on fire. Well, guess what happened to them? They died, but they were screaming in excruciating pain. Two of them did survive because the police stamped them out. And when they were asked, they said that they believed that they were not going to be hurt. Now, The reason I say some people say this story may not be true because this could be simply Chinese propaganda. So let's say that it's not true. Then the other side of it is, which some people believe, is that the Chinese government set this up. And what the people who believe this, believers of the Communist Party, were told that we'll make sure you will not be lit on fire and we'll make sure you're okay. But that didn't happen to either of them. So whatever story is true, because they put their faith in a person, who doesn't actually care about them, who tells them lies, they suffered a very devastating uh, consequence. And a lot of us, not us, but a lot of people join religious groups because they have this very weird idea of the God they believe in. And cults have a huge problem with this. And what we believe affects our lives, right? In Islam, and I don't mind calling out different religions at all, You know, because here's the thing, a lot of them just fall short to God. In Islam, it is believed that men, when they go to heaven, get the whole 72 virgins thing, right? Now, to me, that seems pretty interesting. (laughs) But before you do that, they have all these prohibitions in life. You can't drink alcohol. You can't. There's all these rules because the idea is that if you just, um, you know, uh, 
fast from all these things and abstain from all these things. You get to enjoy drunkenness and forever sex. Sorry, kids. This is what it is. Um, forever and ever and ever. But the question that's interesting is me is, do you know what the women get who are Muslim when they pass away? No. Yeah, they don't either. They, there, there's nothing in there about it, right? And so think about it. There's a reason why that plays out the way it does. If you look at a lot of Muslim countries, they have some of the worst human right abuses for women. Things that we, some reason, don't talk about anymore, such as genital mutilation, human right abuses, these things play out because of what the religion believes. Now, before someone says, James, women have not always been treated well in the West either, that is true, but I believe because of how we understand God, because of who Jesus is, human rights have been able to flourish in Western countries and countries that have been influenced by Christianity than other countries have not. Once again, I'm not saying that we're perfect, but compared to other places in the world, we have it pretty darn good. What you believe matters a lot. Right thinking or being within orthodox is essential to the Christian. And a lot of our problems, I believe, come from is we don't understand who God is. We don't understand the scriptures. So we go out and we do all types of weird things and we wonder why our marriages are falling apart. We wonder why our kids aren't listening. We wonder why our finances are a mess. It's because our thinking and our practice is off. So I said, how does the Trinity relate to this? Well, it's because if we don't understand God, once again, we cannot grow and sanctify. The other day, I was reading this really great sermon from Charles Spurgeon. Well, I, I shouldn't lie. I read like half the sermon. Honestly, it was really long, and it's like written in the 1800s. But I read half a sermon of Charles Spurgeon, and he talked about this um, uh, the Trinity in this sermon, and he called it um, sanctification through the process of the Trinity, which is a really weird name to name a sermon, I think. Um, he was a great preacher, but if you look at the titles of his sermons, they were definitely lacking. Um, I think I'll name this Trinity, no, nah, I don't know why I'll name this sermon, but who knows, but it'll be good, I promise. But he wrote something that was, that was interesting, because depending on your church tradition, because it matters what we think, a lot of us do not understand that the Trinity himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, is important to our entire Christian walk. One of the things I think happens, depending on the tradition you come from, is some people focus more on Christ, right? Very Christ-centered churches. I think a lot of people, like from my tradition, I will say, from who, who is more Reformed, kind of do that a lot. We talk a lot about Christ's supremacy, which is true. That's how my whole sermon was last week. But sometimes we can negate the Father. A lot of people kind of put God, the Father, in the background of the Old Testament. And then some traditions are more Holy Spirit-focused. That comes down to maybe your Pentecostals and Charismatics, right? Where it's much more about the gifts and the Holy Spirit, even the way they refer to the Holy Spirit's doing this in my life. The Holy Spirit, like, the language we use matters. But the fact is, you need God to grow in every aspect of your life. It's not at one moment you only need the Father, and one moment you only need Christ, one moment you only need the Spirit. You need all of them. And I believe that some of the problems that we have, and I, I think this to be true, and I think it's going to be an upcoming thing in the next probably 100 years as we debate this among Christians, is this idea of the ministry of the Trinity and how it works in our lives. 
Because I believe if we focus on only one person in the Trinity, we're going to be lacking as a church. So I want to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon here because I think it really brings it down and says it better than whatever I could say. And he says this. He says, Consider the union of the three divine persons in all their gracious acts. How, wise, how unwisely do these believers talk who make preferences in the person of the Trinity, who think of Jesus as if he were the embodiment of everything lovely and gracious, while the Father they regard as a severely just but destitute of kindness, equally wrong of those who magnify and agree the Father and the atonement of the Son, but to also depreciate the work of the Spirit. In works of grace, none of the persons of the Trinity act separately from the rest. They are as united in their works as they are in their essence. Their love towards the chosen, they are one, and in the actions that flow from the great central source, they are still undivided. So for those who are missing that very poetic 1800s English language, he's basically saying that you cannot be a Christian without the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You need all three. And this works out in our lives. And so before I wrap this sermon up, I want to read a passage of Scripture. And so for this, I just have a simple request. If you are able to stand, because this is going to be a very long passage, I would like you to stand with me as we read the Word, and we're going to go to Romans 8, because I believe Romans 8 talks about the Trinity, the best way and how it comes to our lives. Now I'll be reading from the ESV version of it. It's definitely my reformed background, Matt, on that one. So say amen when you guys are at Roman 8. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to begin reading here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, but it, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the what? Spirit. The fact that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of what? If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not in the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, but whom we cry out, what? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for that the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of uh, the children of God. For we know that all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit growing, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For we, for in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for we hope in what, is, in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray, and we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for all those who love God, what? All things were together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And for those he confirmed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the first among the firstborn among many brothers. For those who he predestined, he also called. And for those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, let's do that again. If God is for us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He is who is to condemn. Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is, at right, who is right now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, do what, guys? Let's read this together. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You guys may be seated. If I can have the worship team come up. I hope that reading that passage uh, riled up your faith. 
I hope it did something for you because I believe that whatever I say cannot compare to the words of the Lord himself. The Apostle Paul wrote this, and I imagine when he was writing this, probably with Phoebe there and Timothy, and they're all, you know, thinking about what to say here, how uh, encouraged they were knowing that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all working to save us and continuing to save us. So the worship team is going to sing for us a little bit, and then we're going to finish up this sermon here with some more scripture and prayer. Would you guys all stand? In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a vital in the dirt Praise the Father the lost to redeem the whole creation you did not despise the cross for even in your suffering you saw through the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus forsake you died Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Till that stone was moved for good For the Lamb had conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs And the angels stood in awe For the souls of all who'd come To the Father are restored And the church of Christ was born 
spirit lit the flame and this gospel truth of old shall not yield shall not faint by his blood and in his name in his freedom i am free for the blood of jesus christ who has resurrected me Uh, you guys may be seated real quick here. I just want to share something. Last week, I, um, I shared part of my testimony with you guys, and I want to just continue with that again and then offer this um, thing for you here as we pray and head out soon. You know, I've heard one theologian say that the Father calls, the Son saves, and the Spirit seals, and that's kind of a very quick way of understanding how the, the Trinity is in all um, our salvation, um, before I became a Christian, I really felt like the Father called me to Him. Um, this is a story I've told very few people, but I want to share it because it's true. It's my testimony. Um, I was one day just laying around, living the best life one might think, and I remember having this really interesting dream. I know there's a lot of debate among Christians if God communicates or dreams. He does. Um, but I remember having this dream. Um, and it felt like God was calling me to him. Um, I'm not someone who ever participated in things like drugs or that type of culture or drinking or anything. Even as a non-Christian, I was usually the designated driver, which is a horrible role to be in. Um, but I remember being called to him. And I searched, and I searched, and I searched. And no matter all the different things I tried, I, I still found Jesus and then Jesus saved me. And I remember sitting, this was in October of 2016, and I was at um, Hardest City for their young adults thing. And I was sitting there after two months of going to church, and um, the guy who was giving the message for the young adults was talking about choosing God over other things. And I remember sitting there in front of a bunch of people I didn't know, trying to hold back tears because it was that moment I really had to decide if I was going to follow Jesus or not. And as I was sitting there, I truly believe, and I've only had this experience once, and you can believe it or not, but I believe it to be true, that God called me. He said, you can either choose me or choose the world. And I've never heard the verse of God before or after. And it shook me to my core. And since that moment... I've tried to follow God the best I can, even when I fail. And I could feel the Father calling me home as a son. And Jesus saved me because he died on the cross. 
right? Because he lived a perfect life and he rose three days from the dead. And he offered us this beautiful gift of grace. And then because I believed in Jesus, I have the spirit that dwells in me. And he continues to change me and sanctify me. So maybe if there's someone in here, if you're like me, and you're not, you know, I, I remember going to church the first time and not feeling like my life was particularly together, you know, because what I saw was a bunch of Christians who seemed to have it way more put together, more, way more holy than I was, um, still kind of both feet in the world and in the church, saying I believe, but not really sure. Um, it's, you, can, you can make that decision today. You can make that decision right now. You can believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this could be the moment where the Father is literally calling you. I will always remember that moment. And I will always tell it when I have a chance. Because I believe that our testimony has power to it. Jesus has been so good to me. And I've been thinking about this a lot I've written so many sermons, I've given so many speeches, I've talked in so many churches and youth groups, young adults groups, and all these things there, and I always want to point out that the gospel is the key. And some people disagree, should you give a gospel message at the end of the sermon, or should you not? It doesn't matter, because when you're preaching the Word of God, the gospel is always in center. So if you're someone who's like, I've been going to church for a while, I think I believe, but I'm not sure, I just ask, what do you have to lose here? Well, the thing you have to lose is your life. Because if you're not believing who God is, if you're stuck in your sinful ways, if you're not changing, the Bible says you are dead in your trespasses. Dead. Why would you want to be dead? I believe this sincerely, that those who do not believe in Jesus are going to die a death and then a second death. And that is serious. That's why I come up here and I talk about this and I give this gospel message every time. Because I believe that those who do not have Jesus in their lives will not be in glory with him. And the promise that Jesus made is to be true because I've seen it in my own life. I was an atheist who did not believe in religion, who believed it was silly. I was a person who was like every other American, partied to a certain extent, slept around. I did all this stuff. And my life has completely changed and been upside down. And there might be someone in here who's like, I'm not good enough to do it. I don't know yet. I'm not sure. I'm telling you, if you make that decision today, life will change forever and for the better for you. It won't be perfect. It will not be perfect. I promise you that. But your life will change. You get a community and a church, which is beautiful. We, read, we listened to a song, God gave his life to start this church to save you. You have the Father, you have a good Father who's there who's going to care for you. You have Jesus who can be described as like the elder brother, the one who was first among the brothers and sisters. So you're going to get the same thing that Jesus will get in heaven that he already has. He's giving that to you. That's what it means to be adopted as sons and daughters. And you have the spirit, the closest friend you'll ever have is God living in you. The greatest comforter. Your wife, your husband, your friends, the drugs, you have none of it will compare to the Spirit when He dwells in you. It will always be not sufficient. So I'm asking you, this is my plea to anyone in here, give your life to Christ. Um, I'm going to end this message here with this section in 2 Corinthians 
Uh, if you guys can head there, there. It's ver- uh, chapter 13, vor- verse 14 here. And we actually know this because we say it all the time here at this church. Let me know when you guys are there. Baby's there, it sounds like. <laughs> Let me know when you guys are there. I want us to read this together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Let me know. I'll wait. You guys are slow, but that's okay. All right, I'm going to read this. If you guys are there, read this with me. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Grace and